welcome you back to our Bible study. Um, over the past year, or specifically over the past 41 weeks, we have been making our way gradually through the um, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, um, also known as the 1689 Confession of Faith. And last week Sunday, last week Tuesday rather, we... Let me put this thing. Last week, Tuesday, we started paragraph 8 of chapter 8, and we titled the subject, we titled the study, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And so last week we started, but we couldn't finish, and I'm trusting the Lord that tonight we would go through the remaining part of this um, paragraph. But before we do so, let us pray. Our God and our teacher, we come before your word asking you to help us to see wondrous things out of it. We come asking you, O God, to instruct us we come asking you to rebuke us, asking you to comfort us, asking you to encourage us, asking, O oh God, that your word would be used by your spirits tonight to bless us and to walk in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So last week, Sunday, we looked, last, why do I keep saying Sunday? Sunday is so much of our mind. Last week, Tuesday, we looked at the first half, the topic is redemption, accomplished, and applied. And last week, we looked at redemption, accomplished. If you were here last week, I believe you still have your own copy of this. We have a limited copy. I'm not sure we have extra copies, because most of us took them home. But if you don't have a copy of this with you, you can, there's a copy on the group chats. Most of us took them home. Only two copies were left in church after the Bible study, which means most of us took our copies home. So you can share with your neighbor or there's, there's no extra copy. Don't worry yourself. Just two copies. You can share with your neighbor or open your smartphone and follow, uh, follow us as we go through the study. So what is redemption? We established last week that redemption is basically to release by payment or to deliver by ransom. And we said that Christ redeemed us, and what that means is that Christ delivered us by paying the ransom that was needed for our release. Last week, Tuesday, we learned that we were redeemed from sin, and on Sunday, we learned from the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4 that we were also redeemed from the law. But I want us to, just by way of recap, turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. If you're there, you can read for us. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. Anybody? The mic is available. Read for us, please. I don't think it's, it's all. 
For you are slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Yeah, just read verse 10. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Okay, I want us to start from here to look at two major things we considered last week. First of all, the redemption is by blood. Christ redeemed us by his blood, by his death, by his sacrifice. They are all referring to the same thing. The work of Christ on the cross is the means by which we are redeemed. So the price that was paid for our redemption was the very life of the Son of God on earth. But the text also shows us something, that the redemption of people is from every tribe and language and people and nation. Every tribe and language and people and nation. And anytime I come to this text, one of the people that come to my mind is the missionary, William Carey. So I don't know if you've heard that name before. William Carey, C-A-R-E-Y. And William Carey today is currently considered as the father of modern missions. So who was William Carey? William Carey was an Englishman. He was a shoemaker, a cobbler. So he was not very, very... He didn't have enough opportunities in his life. So he was not as educated as an Owen or as a Goodwin or a Watson. Those guys who were very educated at Emmanuel College in, in, in Oxford and Cambridge and all that. So he was a shoemaker. And he was an apprentice to somebody who was very skilled. And as he was learning the shoemaking trade, he picked up a copy of whether it was a Greek New Testament or a Greek textbook, and he taught himself New Testament Greek. After a while, his ogre died, and he took up the business from his ogre. And while he was making shoes, he would be reading, he would be reading, learning. He learned Hebrew by himself. He learned Latin, he learned Greek, he learned Dutch, and I think he learned French. So after a while, he began to preach. Some people began to recognize his gifts. He, was, he began to preach. He was a Calvinistic preacher. And he became a pastor. Not long into his pastorate, he became very concerned. He read a particular book by Jonathan Edwards. Now, Jonathan Edwards was an American preacher. So, Carey is in England. Edward lived in the USA. Okay? Now, Edward wrote a small book, which if you've not read, I would recommend for you to read, about the life of David Brainerd. Now, Brainerd was a young missionary who went to the Indians. He died very young. He died, I believe, of tuberculosis. And one of the things that marked Brainerd's life was a concern for souls. So Brainerd was not the kind of, he was sent out of Yale, of course. I mean, the guy was a bit radical at some point. But he went to preach. Some of you might have heard this story. That Brainerd was preaching to the Indians. I mean, I heard this story from my duo then. Uh, D.K. Lukoya. And he said David Brainerd would go to preach and he's preaching to the Indians because the Indians are not hearing English. He would have a drunk interpreter interpreting his preaching and people would be getting saved. And so Brainerd had a very effective, very, very fruitful ministry among the Indians and he died. So Edwards 
Jonathan Edward's daughter was in love with Bernard. So when Bernard fell ill with tuberculosis, it was his daughter that tended to Bernard, and two of them died. So two of them died eventually. So Edward wrote a kind of a brief biography for David Brainerd. Now, Carrie, who is now in England, many years later, picked up this book that Edwards wrote of Brainerd. And when he read it, he became concerned about missions. And one of the things he said was, in God's plan, the redeemed are going to be from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. So here was this shoemaker who taught himself who married an illiterate woman even, packed his load and went to India. Why? Because he believed in this verse. I'm saying this because one of the things people say against particular redemption is that particular redemption is not concerned about souls. Remember I told you Kari was a Calvinist. He was a particular Baptist, much as we are. And in one meeting of pastors, he said, man, we should go and preach and, all, and, and we should go and minister to souls, people across the world. And an old minister stood up in that meeting and told Carrie, God is going to save people however he likes. But it was this Calvinistic young man who went to India. And if you go to India today, India is not a Christian country. But one of the most recognized persons and respected figures of the last, in the last 300 years is William, a missionary. William preached for seven years in India before he got his first convert. What am I saying? While we hold particular redemption, we also hold this truth that God has people in every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So particular redemption does not mean, because I was saying it last week, but I didn't want to establish that point clearly very well last week, that the people who God will save are like 500. Because people somehow assume that if Christ died for a select group of people. The people must be small. No. God has people. And I'm going to stretch this. God has people in every tongue. If we have 400 languages in Nigeria, God has people, according to this text. That's how I interpret this text. And, of course, I'm a bit influenced by John Piper, the missiology of John Piper. God has people in every, every tribe, in ethic. God has people in Hausa, in Fufude, even in the small minority. So you hear that there are different dialects of Igbo. God has people there in Onicha. God has people in Newi, in Oweri. Every single place, God has people. And this is what made men like Harry preach the gospel. They were particular Calvinists in their head, particular Baptists. They believed that Christ died for a group of people. But it was their fueling passion. That was all fueled their passion for mission. So some of us think, okay, if, if God has a number of people he will save, that means we don't have anything to do. No. It means we can actually be confident. You go to a place and you see that nobody is saved there. You can go with confidence if your interpretation of this verse is the same as mine and say, there's at least one person in this tribe that God will save. So contrary to the fact that one objection people usually have, which I didn't t- touch on too much, is that if you believe in particular redemption, you will not do evangelism. That's not true. If you believe in particular redemption, then you are certain you will have results in your evangelism. There must be results in your evangelism. So last week we looked at the fact that Christ has accomplished redemption. And tonight we'll be looking at how he applies redemption or 
some benefits that accrue that flow from the redemption that Christ has accomplished. Last week, we also, let me just do a bit of summary on what I said towards the end of the study last week. Now, in the economy of the Trinity, when we say economy, we mean the working. So it's not, don't think of Nigeria, don't think of dollar, although there's relationship anyway. But we mean the working. In how God works as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is the Father who authors, who ordains, right? It is the Son who acts out or accomplishes, and it is the Spirit who applies. But we established last week that the Holy Spirit does not apply what he has. What the Spirit applies is what is Christ's. Are we together? So the Holy Spirit is applying what belongs to Christ. And Jesus said it in John chapter 16, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will take of what is mine and make it known to you. So whatever the Holy Spirit does for us flows from what Christ accomplished on the cross, flows from the redemption that Christ accomplished by his blood. Are we together? So, so let's look at some of the things that stem from uh, the work of Christ. Let's go back to our paper. And I'm going to read the new, the updated English own. It says, To all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he certainly and effectually applies and imparts it. He intercedes for them, unites them to himself by his spirit, and reveals to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation. He persuades them to believe and obey and govern their hearts by his word and spirit. He overcomes all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom, using methods and ways that are perfectly consistent with his wonderful and unsearchable governance. All these things are by free and absolute grace, apart from any condition for obtaining it that is foreseen in them. That is those that he died for. So there are about six things or seven things that we are going to learn tonight about the benefits that flow from the redemption of Christ, the redemption Christ has done. So links to the application of redemption are, number one, intercession, which is the first thing we're looking at tonight. Christ intercedes for those that he dies for. Christ intercedes for those for whom he died now, the intercession of Christ, as we've, we tried to establish, we tried to establish, but like in a very subtle, not, not, not fully last week, is tied to his death. So that Christ prays for those for whom he died. Christ does not pray for the whole world. And turn to John chapter 17. Christ does not pray for the whole world. I'm looking for the direct verse where he said, I do not pray for the whole world. Um, but I pray for those whom you have given me in the world. Don't worry. Before, before, we, before we close, I'll, I'll get to that. Verse 9. Thank you. He said, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me and they are yours. So that people that Christ is praying for are those who are, remember last week, his sheep, his church, his people. Christ does not pray for, 
You know, when we were children and we learned how to pray morning devotion, you know, some kind of prayers we used to pray. We say, after we give thanks and ask for forgiveness of sin, we say, Lord, we pray for all the prisoners. That Father release them. Release all the prisoners. And as I was growing older, I said, if God releases, how can God release all the prisoners? And then we pray very generic prayers sometimes. Some of them are bad, some of them are not bad. We pray, okay, be with all those who are traveling. Be with all those who are hungry. Now, when Christ prays, Christ's praying is not for the world. If you think it's callous, it's not callous. Christ's praying is for those for whom he died. Have you ever asked yourself, what does Christ pray, what does Christ pray for me? So what is the nature of Christ's praying? Let's look at a number of things. Number one, Christ is praying that those who are not saved would come to him. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Christ is praying for those who will believe in him through the preaching of the apostles. By extension, we who believed, who have believed in Christ through the witness of the apostles. So Christ prays for those who would come. Secondly, Christ prays that those who are in would receive pardon for sin. So when we are asking for forgiveness, Christ is already praying for our pardon. Look at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 2. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. The work of an advocate is to plead your case. So that when you lied, as you are asking God for forgiveness, know that Christ is praying for you, for your pardon. Number three, that will be kept from the accusations and temptations of Satan. One of the things that, I mean, Classical example illustration is Zechariah chapter 3 with Joshua the high priest. One of the things that the devil does for us is to accuse us. One of the things that the devil does is to always bring, I say, oh, this guy is dirty, this guy is stained, this guy is not clean, he's not holy. How can you say, God, that this is your child? Christ prays that we'll be kept from the accusations and temptations of Satan. Four, Christ prays that we may be progressively sanctified. John 17, 17, sanctify them by Thy truth, thy word is truth. So Christ is praying that you would become like him. Christ is praying that we would look more and more like him. That will be transformed with the progression of time. That our desires will be changing. That our actions will be changing. That our prayer life will be better. Christ is praying. You know, sometimes... We get discouraged that things are not working well in our lives and people are not praying for us. Are you praying for me? Well, there's somebody who is praying for you. Christ is constantly praying. Look at Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9. I think verse 25. Or Hebrews 7.25, not 9.25. It says, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he, he does what? Always leads to make intercession for them. Always. It's as if when Jesus resurrected, when he came to earth and he died 
and he resurrected from, was resurrected from the dead and he ascended to heaven. His job, part of his job description now is prayer for you and for me. So that what Jesus is doing now, how you relate our time and eternity, I don't know, but what Jesus is doing now, 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 is praying for you. Always live to make intercession. Number five, Christ is praying that we would make it to use our Nigerian um, this thing. But look at John 17, 24. It says, Father, verse 24, I desire that they also, which is us, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Christ is praying that you would see his glory, which is that we would eventually see him as he is. First John chapter 3. Christ is praying that we make it. Lastly, Christ is praying that our services to God may be accepted. So these are some of the things, these, these are not all of the things that Christ is praying for, but these are some of the things that Christ is praying for, for us on a daily basis. And this flows directly from redemption. Number two, look at the confession. It says he unites us to himself by his spirit. Number two is union with Christ. Number two of the the things listed in the confession is union with Christ by his spirit. Union with Christ by his spirit. This is one of the profoundest of doctrines that will be found in the pages of the New Testament. How many times does the Bible refer to us as Christians? How many times? How many? Once, twice, Antioch, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, down to Revelation. The Bible does not refer to believers as Christians. In fact, it's like the way people call the Puritans the Puritans. The Puritans did not call themselves Puritans. It was more like the, 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 it was a derogatory term. They are trying to yap person, S-U. That's how they were calling the Puritans, Puritans, Natinsen and Holy Pass, that kind of a thing. And then it stuck on. That became their name. They didn't call themselves Puritans. Same thing when the church was at Antioch, gathered. They said these people are behaving a certain way. They are Christians. But in the episodes, one of the ways we are referred to are as those who are in Christ. In Christ. Not Christians. We are those in Christ. And every time you see in Christ in your Bible, maybe later on read any of the episodes of Paul, read Romans, read Ephesians, read Galatians, in Christ, appears over and over again. And it is pointing to this singular truth that believers are united with Christ. What's the nature of this union? This union is an organic union. Organic, you know, when the Bible sometimes says this, that Christ is the head and we are the body, that's an organic union. Which is that, have you ever seen a head separated from a body and still functioning? So Christ is the head and we are the rest of the body. So we are united to Christ organically. It's also a mystical union. It's not something that, um, it's not something that is really straightforward the way you carry maybe milo and milk and mix in the cup and say, this is unity. It's, in a sense, it's, it's a kind of mysterious thing. We can't, it's not physical. It's a spiritual unity we have with Christ. The question, however, is when are we united with Christ? 
When are we united with Christ? Are we united with Christ in eternity past, if there's such a thing as that, or we are united with Christ in time? Anybody, if you have an idea. When are we united with Christ? Because the confession is saying that it is after Christ died, really, that this became our benefit. Because of time, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. When are we in Christ? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, again, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Unity with Christ has its source in the election of God, the Father, before the foundation of the world. So we are actually united with Christ before the foundation of the world. We are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. But what the confession is talking about is what goes on on the ground, the application. It is like this one is in the divine purposes of God. You don't know of it, but you are saved in time. And so when you are saved, what the Holy Spirit does is to, on the ground, unite you with Christ. Does that make any sense? Does that make any sense? We are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, but on the ground, the application, the real thing now happens after Christ has died and the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. We do not become actual partakers until we have believed in him and the Holy Spirit unites us practically. Now, it looks very confusing, but Because one of the questions I had was, why is the confession saying we are united with Christ in time? Because the Bible clearly says we are united with Christ before the foundation of the world. But the practical outworking of that uh, redemption is effectually applied in time. Number three, the confession says Christ reveals to us in and by his word the mystery of salvation. Christ reveals to us in and by his word the mystery of salvation. Now the word mystery has it, it's a kind of it's a kind of cult term. It's a kind of now, how many of us have been in secret court before? <laughs> we are laughing. Okay, how many of us have been in, how many of us have ever been in a kind of group where certain things are exclusive? Not many of us are rich according to the, to the standards of the world. There are certain groups you are in where the things that are discussed in that group, the other people do not hear it. The things that are said in that group, the other people do not hear it. That's the kind of idea that is linked to the word mystery. Mystery is like something is only revealed to you when you are initiated into that group. You understand? So the things are there. It is plain before your sight. But you will not really understand it. You can't, it is not made plain to you until you have been initiated. Turn to Ephesians we're already in Ephesians chapter 1 anyways. So look at verse 7. 
It says, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. What Christ does for us in applying our redemption is to make known to us the mystery of his will. Sometimes we wonder, this thing is so simple. Why doesn't Abdul understand this thing we are saying? Because he has not been initiated. It is not possible for a man by his own natural understanding to come to terms with the fact that Adam sinned, Christ came, and Christ did what Adam could not do. And because of Christ, we are now forgiven of our sins. Now, it makes sense to you. You are theologically educated. You have been saved. So it makes a lot of sense to you. But I'm telling you, it makes no sense to the normal person. It makes no sense. Especially in a world where you hear things like karma. You hear things like incarnation. You always report you so. If I sinned against God, I should bear the punishment. If I sinned, which is where all the religions of the world are coming from. That it is by my own merit that I'm going to go into heaven. I'm trying to do more good than bad. So that perhaps on the last day, when my works are put on a scale, the good will be heavier than the bad. To come and tell that person that, see, your good does not matter, but the good of Christ matters, makes no sense. How, how, how? We understand these things because we have been initiated. Sometimes we think it's not a big deal. But if you read the episodes of Paul, count the number of times Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel. Sometimes he talks about it this way, that the mystery of the gospel is the fact that it was not revealed before that Gentiles will also be saved. Paul calls that a mystery. And he says, now, God has opened it up for us. For who? Those who are in Christ. It is not a simple thing that you understand the gospel. If it were so simple, everybody would understand the gospel on the streets. Even many men on the pulpit do not understand the gospel. That we have received the revelation of the mystery of our salvation. It flows from the work of Christ. Number four, it says, Christ persuades us to believe and obey. He persuades us to believe and to obey. First John chapter 5, verse 20. First John chapter 5, verse 20. It says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. The Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. The Son of God has come and has given us spiritual light. Somewhere else in first, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the apostle says the reason why the people of the world do not believe is because the God of this world has blinded their eyes. But for us, light has shone in our hearts to give us a revelation of who Christ is, the light of the gospel of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What Christ does for us is that he gives us spiritual light so that we believe and obey. Again, these are spiritual things. We believe and we obey the gospel. Number five, he says, and Christ governs our hearts by his word and spirit. Now, I am surprised that the 
This updated version is from Founders, Founders Ministry, the ministry of Tom Askell, is a Baptist, um, Baptist pastor somewhere in the U.S. I, I'm surprised that they kept the word govern because usually we don't, we don't use the word govern. If you watch some kind of old movies or you've read a lot of, um, what's it called, old books, you hear of a governess. Today, when we hear the word govern, the first thing we think of is erufai, yaya bello, to govern, or politicians. We think of politicians as gov- governing. So when we think, I was surprised that they kept this word govern. A more modern way to put it is to say lead. So that Christ leads our hearts by his word and the spirits. So the fifth benefit is that Christ leads us. And I'll holler this more. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. It says, you, however, no, let's leave verse 9. Let's read verse 14 first. We'll come to verse 9. It says, the spirit himself, pardon me, my eyes, eh? Verse 14 says, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Popular passage, what does it mean? That's usually the problem, what does it mean? Now, the popular meaning of this verse is that if you want a wife, God will lead you. If you want to make money, God will lead you. I mean, if you, if you have two business opportunities, and you are praying, oh God, I want to know the one that will give me money, confirm money, where my money will not be lost, where my investment will not be missing, where they won't run, when they will run away with my money. And they will come to this verse and say, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. That's not what the passage is saying. Now, I read a very, very helpful book some, some years back, maybe five years ago, by a man called Kevin DeYoung. Kevin DeYoung is a pastor. I don't know where he's pastor. He's somewhere, he's pastoring a PCH, he's a Presbyterian minister. He's alive, he's like 45 years old now, somewhere in the US. And the title of that book was Just Do Something. And in the book, he was trying to, to, really, to really talk about this idea that God's plan for us is never to do something unless we have received a clear leading from him. In terms of a voice, a sign, a push, a dream, a blowing of the wind, or whatever we, 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 want to, we want to call it. And his idea was that God's leading in our lives, I'm even talking, before I even talk about this one, is way different from that thing. We have, I think we have imported a lot of our own, I think in Africa, a lot of the way our pagan gods used to speak to us we have imported into Christianity. Because how did the high priest of Amadioha know what to do? Amadioha did not have a book. So the guy is looking at the moon, looking at the, 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 the way the moon, the number of days before the moon comes out. If the moon comes late by a day, it's a sign that the gods are speaking. If the rains come late, it's a sign that the gods are offended. If this one does this, if this one... So based on the signs that the priest is seeing, he's not able to tell the people this is what you should do. For us in Africa, I think we, we have imported that largely into the church. 
So that we are saying, the Bible is saying that we must be led by God before we make any decision. Now, there's a difference between God's providence. There's a difference between God's, God opening doors for you. There's a difference between God guiding you. You are praying for something, and as you are praying for it, a door opens. There's a difference between that and you saying, I will not do anything unless I receive something from God. That I will not get married until God speaks to me clearly that this is my wife. If I'm where I'm coming from, in your counseling, your marriage counseling, they will ask you, have you been able to confirm that this is God's will for you? I don't know how to answer that question. What do you mean by confirm? If you are speaking about God coming to give me a certain 100%, that's what they are talking about when you talk about the leading, 100% infallible confirmation that this is my wife or this is my husband, then that's not biblical. But if you're talking about having prayed and sought counsel and looked into God's word, can you say you are in the will of God? That's a different matter altogether. So this text is not saying that God is going to lead us to the bus we will enter when we are traveling to the village. God is going to lead us to the SIM card we will pick when we go to buy our SIM. God is going to lead us to the exact INEC officer that will make our PVC collection easy. God is going to lead us to the place where we will eat food and there will not be poison. God is going to lead us to... So all of those things, that's not in the text. I think, based on the context, I think there are about three things we can talk about the leading of God based on Romans chapter, chapter 8. Look at verse 9. It says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The spirit is mentioned three times in this verse with three different distinct. First, is the spirit. Second, he is the spirit of God. Third, he is the spirit of Christ. One of the things the Holy Spirit will do is to lead you to Christ. He's the spirit of Christ. Anything that the Holy Spirit is doing in your life that has not led you to Christ is not the spirit of God. It could be Amadioha or your, your village people. It's not the Spirit of God. Because if you read, look at, look at what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. See, look at John chapter 14, John chapter 16. The Holy Spirit never has a ministry that is devoid from Christ. In fact, I don't want to, this is not biblical. But if you are looking at it with your carnal mind, it's as if the Holy Spirit is the servant of Jesus. If you are looking with it carnally, but that's not what the Bible is saying. Because the Holy Spirit is going to reveal to you the things of Christ. So the first thing the Holy Spirit will do to anybody, if the Spirit of God is really in that person, is to lead the person to Christ in terms of salvation and continue to lead the person to the fullness that is in Christ. The Holy Spirit, to take an illustration from the Old Testament, is as if the Holy Spirit is leading us from Egypt to the promised land. The Egypt of sin to the promised land of Christ. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the Holy Spirit will lead us in holiness. Verse, verse 13, it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The leading of the Holy Spirit is usually linked, is usually towards the mortification of our sins. I like the way the, we don't have time to look at this verse, but Paul is saying, by the Spirit, the means by which we 
make advances and progress in holiness is by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will help us to modify the deeds of the body, to modify the deeds of our flesh, our anger, our lust, our pride. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit will lead us with assurance, which is in verse 16. It says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is linked to what we learned on Sunday, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, that because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The leading of the Spirit is a confirmation that we are the children of God. The leading of the Spirit is not, is not about the clothes to buy. You go to the market to buy rapper, and you say, oh God, A, B, C, D, E, F, has, they have rapper, where should I go? But will God providentially guide you? Yes, he will. But that's not what the passage is talking about. And that's not what the confession is even talking about. But the confession did not just say that he will guide us or govern us by his spirit, but also by his word. John 17, 17. He will govern us by his word. What the Holy Spirit will use to do each of these things is the word of God. The Holy Spirit will lead us to Christ by his word. The Holy Spirit will lead us in holiness by his word. We receive assurance by the word as well. Some people have come to this text and, let's not go into assurance of salvation. But this is what the Holy Spirit is going to do, to govern our hearts, to lead us more and more into Christ. And number six, very important, it says that he overcomes all our enemies. He overcomes all our enemies. Who is your enemy? Let me ask that question. Who would you say is your greatest enemy? Pardon? The devil. An entity, an abstract being, Satan, sin, flesh. When I was in primary one, um, I like telling this story once in a while. I used to attend a program called Palm of Shade Hands. And so I had this girl in school who I, I hated this girl. Her name was Ujumwa. I've never seen an evil girl that would be so annoying. She annoyed me to the bone. And so every month, I'm not, I'm not throwing shades at the church. I'm, I'm telling you about my own life. Every month, first Saturday of the month, we go to this program. And then we'll write our prayer points. There was a time was seven prayer points. And so I'll write seven prayer points. And whenever I'm listing my enemies, the enemies in my life, I used to put Uju's name. I'm not joking. I used to put Uju's name. Because I thought that when the, actually, maybe that's what the pastor was actually saying. When we're talking about our enemies and God to frustrate our enemies, I used to think in terms of human beings. It's possible, yes, we actually have human beings that can be our enemies. Else, why would the Bible say we should pray for our enemies? But when we talk about our enemies and definitely what the confession is talking about, it's not talking about physical enemies. Christ has overcome all our enemies, specifically sin. Romans chapter 6 is clear with this, that when we died in Christ, we died to sin. And it says, the man, verse 7 to be precise of Romans 6, it says, the man who has died to sin is free from it. The reason why sin will no longer have dominion over the believer is because in Christ, sin has been defeated. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. 
He says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let me, let me just say this, but Jesus Christ actually has defeated the devil for his people. And the demonic powers have been defeated by Christ for his people. The application I am making is if you are a Christian and you still think the powers of your father's house are pursuing you and they are having victory over you, then you don't believe that Christ has actually defeated the powers of darkness. He actually did it. A pastor I respect so much once told me that the reason why we are cessationists, sorry, I used the term, sorry, let me take, let me take it back. A pastor I respect so much once told me that the reason why some people in Nigeria do not believe in the continual working, like in the book of Acts, where we see the apostles having direct revelation and working miracles is because we have not seen demonic powers. And so he was saying something like, some of us, we are just copying Oyubu people. Most of our books are from Oyubu people. We are reading John Owen. We are reading Oyubu people. So he says, Oyubu theology, I'm paraphrasing him, in case he's listening to this, Oyubu theology is different from Nigerian practice. So Oyubu theology is Oyubu theology. It does not work for us here. But you know what? One thing I think he's failing to to, to understand, that the churches in Galatia and Colossae and some of the churches Paul was writing to were steeped in pagan mysticism. Yes. So some of the things you would do, they were doing it. The gospel got to barbarians. Barbarians were not cultured people. They would do some of the things your own forefathers, my forefathers and you, would do today. The divination, the dancing naked in the water, they would have done it. So that when Paul was writing to these churches, he's writing to them with an understanding of the fact that you people were steeped in paganism before the gospel came to you. And you don't have to be running back to those false teachers who will tell you that there is deliverance somewhere. The deliverance that you need has been gotten for you by Christ. Now this is what an Oyibo man said concerning this passage. His name is John Gill. He was one of the pastors that, that became, where Charles Spurgeon pastored. He was one of the pastors before then. He said, this verse shows us how complete the saints are in and by Christ. And that the saints stand in no need of the philosophy of Gentiles or the ceremonies of the Jews. The saints have nothing to fear from their enemies, which are sin. Satan, and even the law is abolished and Satan conquered John Gill. The enemies we are fighting are the enemies that Christ has already defeated. So it's like you have crushed the serpent, but the serpent is still shaking. It's basically stripped of every power. Sin, death, Satan, demonic powers have no ability to hurt the believer unless you are not in Christ. Because on the cross, he publicly disarmed and made an open show of principalities. In fact, King James made this thing more. King James said principalities and powers. Although I, I'm not sure that's a, this might be a better translation though. So Christ deals with all our enemies, the enemies of our souls. 
Christ has dealt with it. Lastly, which is just like a caveat, it says, all these things are by free and absolute grace, apart from any condition for sin in us. It's trying to, the, the, the writers of the confession are trying to establish that all these benefits we're enjoying are actually from God's grace, not because of anything we've done. So Christ has accomplished our salvation. He has applied it. And the benefits that flow from the application is not because of anything in us. In other words, Christ did not look into the future to see that we would obey him well, that we would read our Bible well, that on a day when many people are asking for holiday, we'll be in Bible study. It was not because of anything. And this is the emphasis of Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 10, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace. And, and I was listening somewhere. What was I listening to this morning? I was listening to something. Harry Reader. Just one, one American pastor somewhere. And I was listening to a podcast. And he said, in Ephesians chapter 1, you see the Trinitarian God walking in our salvation. And at the end of every section, Paul talks about the praise of his glorious grace. So when he talks about the work of the Father in planning our salvation, he says, to the praise of his glorious grace. When he talks about the Son accomplishing it, it's to the praise of his glorious grace. When he talks about the Spirit applying it, it is to the praise of God's glorious grace. So everything we receive are as a result of God's grace to us, not by any of our works. What have we learned? Number one, is that we are thoroughly blessed in Christ. We are sufficiently blessed. Now, this is not exhaustive of all of the blessings we have. In fact, the following, the chapters we are going to see from, from chapter 9, adoption, sanctification, we're going to see more and more of the blessings that Christ has made available for us, his people. Not even made available, that he has purchased for us, his people. But we are thoroughly blessed in Christ. All of these benefits are yours if you are in Christ. One of, the, one of the things that really, really, I don't know about you, when I think about the intercession of Christ, it breaks me. Because, man, I've gone, I've gone through stuff in my life. Even when I talk about real struggles. And one of the things that, that, that provide the, the strongest of encouragement is the fact that Christ is praying for me. You know when you go through certain periods of darkness where you can't find your brother, you are calling your brother, the person who said, call me when you have challenges. The person number no, they go. As you are calling him, he's not picking your call. And you're looking for somebody to turn to, and you feel like life is boom. Those nights when you are depressed and you are crying, you're like, where do I turn to? Friend, Christ is praying for you. This is one of the benefits of your redemption. And you know something that amazes me about the prayer of Christ? God always answers his prayers. Always. Is that next God will listen to his prayers. We are thoroughly blessed in Christ. Which means even if I don't have money, I don't have food to eat this night, I don't have enough clothes, I don't have enough this or that, I am thoroughly blessed in Christ. Secondly, see, this is our salvation there. It's certain. Which is what is coming to be over again in the lines of this paragraph. That our salvation is certain. That is that we, Christ did not just get the potential. Christ did not just save us and say, okay, okay, try to get this one. Okay? Okay, so there are levels in the Christian life. If you pass level one, Christ will start interceding for you. 
If you pass level two, you begin to enjoy the governing of the Holy Spirit by the word. If you pass level three, you begin to understand more and more of the gospel. Is that when Christ died for you, the benefits are like take. You don't even have to, you see, you don't even have to trek and say, okay, trek from there, come here to take. It's like just take. Certainty of our salvation. That if Christ dies for you, Christ is for you. All the benefits are for you. This is, this is wonderful stuff. That I don't even have to walk. It is not even talking, this is not antinomian. I don't have to walk to get Christ to pray for me, to enjoy the leading of the Spirit, to enjoy the defeats that Christ has done of all my enemies, of sin and Satan and death, on all the demonic powers, the certainty of our salvation. And we can trust in this Christ that has saved us and has really applied the benefits of our salvation to our hearts and our souls. Christ can be trusted. Christ can be trusted. Do you have any questions? questions? Online, any questions? Anybody? Question? So that's a sign that we understood everything, which is very good. Yes, brother. about situations where I think last week you mentioned towards the end of um, was it your pastor go to dimension about Christ um, someone being saved at maybe the wrong time in his life that the person wishing he was saved earlier on in his life that was my sermon on Sunday okay, that was your sermon on Sunday okay. and um, I was just thinking you mentioned about having confidence and knowing that Christ is praying for us, and we shouldn't fear the devil or Satan or sin. Um, I will approach this question from two points. Okay. Although the, the, the answers could be there very easily. Um, one question is, what about people with, who are saved maybe later on in their life, and they had lots of deep struggles and habits that continues to overwhelm them even after being Christians yeah. as well and my second question is, is is around the same thing again but in Nigeria people genuinely have a fear of demonic powers as well it's consistent in their prayer in their fear in fact people go to, I, I've met Christians even this week I met one lady who said she's even going to the mountain to pray but she feels like her fiance is that the marriage may not even work again. She feels like a demonic power is attacking her. So, when, you know, how do you approach this to... So, what's the first Remind me of the first question again. First question is on saved later on in your life mm. on, and you've already struggled with difficult habits and... Okay, difficult habits that are difficult to... Uh, habits that are hard to break. Does any, can anybody answer? Any answer? 
The first question is, how do you, the fact that God saves us at the right time, how do you, how do you speak to somebody who, before becoming a Christian, probably has already started doing drugs? Or steeped in sexual sin? Or in corruption, stealing, lying? That's hysterical. Let me let me try. You said you said something this evening. You said whenever we go through things, whenever you go through things, and um, the thing that gives you the most comfort is that Christ is interceding for you. Yeah. And I think that's something that as Christians we actually don't remember often. We hardly we we know, we know it's in the Bible. We know that if we if they, if they say the scripture, we can help you to help somebody to complete it. But we actually forget often that Christ is interceding for us, and so if someone um, becomes um, Christian late in their life and they've had series of troubles and traumas and different things that they are dealing with, mm. at the point that you're now a Christian, your struggle in a sense changes. Those things are still there, but now you know Christ is interceding for you. So at that point, when you are down. When you are low, when you're feeling like, hey, God, should I just, why, why, why did I have to go through all of this before coming, getting to this point? When you remember that you have um, an intercessor, someone that keeps pleading on your behalf for you, basically, mm -hmm. I think that can give some form of comfort. Because you're now you, you, you're not looking to yourself to deal with those struggles any longer. Because on your own, you cannot deal with them. But you now have Christ to help you go through those um, struggles. I don't that's fine. Okay, ma'am. Thank you. But, but another way to also view the question is, when we talk about the three tenses of salvation, which is a term we sometimes use, the Bible does not use that term, but it's something that can be said based on pages of scripture, is that we have been saved, right, from the penalty of sin. But in the present times, we are, present time, we are being saved from, in a sense, the power of sin. The, the power that sin has over our lives because of us. And he said, maybe the subjective power of sin. Christ has dealt with sin for us, dealt with the reign and dominion of sin is over. But now we are being saved, which means what people, which is what people call sanctification, progressive sanctification, or a better use of the word would be transformation. That having been saved, God continues to transform us by his spirit. That's, that's, that's the Christian life. That that person who has lived his life all this while, at the point he was saved, receives the Holy Spirit who continues to change him or her. For me, that's a simple answer to that question. The problem usually is that we don't feel like God is working fast enough. Right? I mean, you hear those stories of the moment I gave my life to Christ, the desire to drink disappeared. I've heard those stories. And it's not, this is not, because sometimes we like mocking charismatic people. I have a friend who got saved and certain things just died off. God just dealt with it the day he got saved. The desire to drink just decided. He was no longer a drunkard that day. But there are some other people who also love God, genuinely, and have been saved, but who struggle with that thing for years. Why? I don't know. I don't know. So sometimes God doesn't deal with these things immediately. God sometimes leaves the Canaanites in the land 
to teach us how to fight so that we know how to really be. Because by the time we are coming in, we are, we are last. God leaves the Canaanite to teach you that. But you have to be vigilant every day. So that one is in God's purposes. But we can trust God that over time we are being transformed by the, by the work of his spirit. Second question about this thing, about powers and Nigerians in fear. Now, what we are not saying is that because Christ has defeated Satan, Satan does not do anything at all. That's another extreme. When people say Christ has defeated Satan, you don't have to do, you don't have to be conscious of the activity of Satan. Satan is dead. Satan, I march you on your feet. You are dead. You can do nothing. The question is, the sin that Christ has defeated, don't we still struggle with sin? Yes. But the way we struggle with sin is not in the way, it's not in that sin now, sin does not have power over us. Whatever power that sin has over us is the power that we have allowed sin to have. To put this another way, our sins, we are fully responsible for them. And if we rely upon God, Romans chapter 8, if we rely upon the Holy Spirit, we will actually put to death the desires of our flesh. If we rely upon God, it's like a certainty that if you rely upon the help of the Spirit, mortification can actually happen in your life. Now, John Owen has a very wonderful book the big one and the small one, on multiplication of sin. And one of the things John Owen says is that over time, multiplication does not mean that sin will just disappear, what people look for, but that the power of sin, that's that, that strength, that sin, that pull that sin has over the believer will become weaker and weaker and weaker. It's like, um, let me use this example. The, man, you explain this night by 9 p.m. As if man you match is your sin. The moment you get to, you must watch that match. The pool is irresistible. You always run mad, almost run mad if you don't watch it. But as time goes on, you begin to say, ah, man, you play, man, you play. It's not even important. It's not even important. Our World Cup is on Sunday. It's not even important. The, the, the power is loose, like becomes lesser and lesser. Similarly with the other things that Jesus has actually defeated for us, the devil is not dead. The devil is alive and kicking. The difference is that the devil does not have power over us. That dominion that the devil would have over the unbeliever who he can call his child, a child of darkness, who is in the domain of darkness, the devil can have it over us. So the devil can only use schemes that we can, by the help of the Holy Spirit, even shut out. So the devil has no power over us. We have no reason to fear. Christ has, Christ has dealt the definitive blow on Satan and all the demonic cohorts. What Satan is doing here is just, is just screaming. He doesn't really have power in terms of practical power over the believer. Sometimes we allow Satan to because we are not vigilant enough. The same way with sin. But the definitive blow has been given by Christ. So how do we, we don't have to be fear of anything. We don't fear sin. We don't fear death. We don't fear devil. We don't fear anything. God is our only fear. Amen. We can talk more about that later. Because I know this issue of demonic descent is actually, it's on a case-by-case basis that you deal with it. Because some people are actually not saved. Some people who are in church are not saved. And so some of the things that they are experiencing in their lives flow from the result of the fact that they are not even Christians. So somebody is still practicing certain things and still saying that they're having power over me. You're not really a Christian yet. So, yeah. I think we can pray. We're 10 minutes into our time. There's no other questions, right?
Another question. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, the work of your Son who came down, became as us to redeem us. And we thank you for the benefits of this redemption that have been applied to us effectually by your Son. Lord, we ask that you would help us to remember these things and that you build in us a continual confidence in our Lord Christ and that you would help us, oh God, in all of our struggles and battles and difficulties that we encounter here in our walks with you. Lord, we ask you on a daily basis to continue to grant us victory by your Spirit. We pray, oh God, as we go home tonight that you grant us sound sleep and that you bless the remainder of the week for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.